0: This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. I have been dealing with the question, do we really believe the Bible? Today, I want to look at how distorting the Scriptures is proof that we don't really believe what the Bible says. Our text is Second Corinthians chapter two and verse seventeen says for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. We need to look at this subject because sometimes we don't even realize it that we're doing it. It's easy to do. Sometimes we think we're just making what God said stronger or more clear. Let's start by looking at the first time this happened. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is a very clear and simple command. There is not only a command, there is a clearly stated consequence for disobedience. When Eve told the serpent, Satan, what God had said, she changed it slightly. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die." When Eve said, "'Neither shall ye touch it,' I doubt seriously that she was deliberately distorting what God had said. First of all, we don't know what Adam had told her. Maybe he had told her not to touch the tree for her own protection. The point is that God did not say they could not touch the tree. When Eve said, "'Lest ye die,' she may well have thought she was just saying the same thing as, "'Thou shalt surely die.'" The difference may not be really obvious. God said, Thou shalt surely die. This is a definite statement of fact. There is absolutely no doubt that death will come if you eat of the fruit. Lest ye die, on the other hand, is much less definite. It says that it may happen that you will die. It could mean that you will die, but it is a much weaker statement. Those who support the New Bible versions often say that the differences don't make any real difference. It doesn't take much changing of the words to change the meaning. Satan is subtle and will use those changes, as he did in this case, to draw us away from the truth. Notice how he used this small change in the next verse. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. She said that if she ate the fruit, she might die. Satan came back and said she would not surely die. He contradicted what God had said, but not what Eve had said. In the next step, he went a step further and charged God with hiding something from them. He said, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Small differences in the wording of things can allow different conclusions. Satan knows how to take small changes in wording and use them to cause great changes in doctrine. An example of this is something that I'm starting to see in some Baptist churches. This never would have happened had it not been a small change made in, in verses like 1 Corinthians 1.18. In the King James Bible, this verse says, "...the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. The modern translations change this are saved to are being saved. This change makes salvation a process instead of an event. While it is true that there is a process that brings us to salvation, one is saved the instant he believes. If salvation is a process that starts when we believe and is finished at some time in the future, it can be interrupted before it is completed. This opens the door to this new doctrine. It says that one has eternal security as long as one wants it, but if he decides he no longer wants it, he can walk away from his salvation. This doctrine violates the principle that we are kept by the power of God, not by our own power. In 1 Peter 1.5 it says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. John told us that those who leave Christianity were not Christians in the first place. In 1 John 2.19, he said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In this verse, John is telling us that it is a certainty that those who are truly Christians will never depart. Another way scriptures can be distorted is by the misuse of a passage. You don't have to change the words or even the meaning of the words to distort scripture. You can distort scripture by using a passage in a way that ignores the context in which it is used. My favorite example of this is the way many use Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door... I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. In context, this verse refers to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has been put out of the church of the Laodiceans. In this verse, the Lord is telling the pastor that he is knocking on the door of the church, trying to get back inside. He says, if someone will open the door, he will come in and restore the sweet fellowship that a church is supposed to have with its Lord. It is a distortion of Scripture to use this verse to say that Jesus is knocking at the door of a lost person's heart trying to get in so he can save him. When I have pointed out to people that this verse is not talking about knocking on the sinner's heart, I am told that I am right in my interpretation, but that it can have more than one application. Is this really so? I don't think so. There are times when Scriptures make an application that isn't apparent at the first reading, but when it makes the application, there's always an underlying principle that's involved. And here's an example of this. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Paul uses this twice to teach that churches should take care of their pastors. In 1 Corinthians 9 Nine through eleven, it says, "For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn." Doth God take care for oxen, or saith He it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things. Is it a great thing if we reap of your carnal things? Then again, in in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, Let the rulers that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. In these two passages, Paul is taking the principle that if the ox is doing the work of treading out the corn, he should be able to profit from his labor. In like manner, the pastor should profit from the material things of those for whom he labors in spiritual things. There is no underlying principle in Revelation 3.20 that allows it to be used to refer to Christ knocking at the door of a lost person's heart. The danger in using this verse this way is that it teaches that we can use any passage of Scripture to say whatever we want it to say. This is a very dangerous thing to teach. Whether we teach it by example or we teach it specifically, it's, it's dangerous because it leads to all kinds of false doctrine. We need to take care that we don't distort the Word of God by using passages outside of their context when there's no underlying principle to support the other application. Another way of distorting the Scriptures is not knowing the meanings of the words, Many words, both in English and in Greek, have more than one meaning. It behooves the preacher and teacher of the Word of God to know which meaning is appropriate for a given passage. This is why one of the most valuable tools for studying the Bible is a good English dictionary. To understand the meaning of words given in context, there are several things that must be done. It is necessary to consider the context in which the word is used. For example, the word hold has the following meanings. It means to refrain from escape. It means to embrace or accept. It means to keep together. It means to consider or have in mind. It means to retain within itself. It means to have or possess. And about 20 other definitions that you'll find in a good dictionary. To show how knowing the meaning of the word hold Uh, in its context is important, let's look at the following passage. In Romans 1.18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Many of the modern translations change the word hold to suppress. I have even heard many who use the King James Bible make this same change when they preach from this passage. They do this to say that the word in this verse is talking about keeping the truth from others. Let's examine the verse in its context and see if this is what the word really means here. The first thing we need to consider is if the word means to keep the truth from others, then what follows only refers to those who are trying to keep others from knowing the truth. Those who don't try to keep others from knowing that the things taught in this passage of Scripture are wrong would not be guilty of holding the truth in unrighteousness and therefore the condemnation would not be upon them. If a person is part of a false religion, like those in Islam, for example, and if that person is faithful to that religion, he is certainly not trying to suppress the truth as he sees it. He is, however, holding the truth in unrighteousness. By this I mean that there are principles of Islam that he does not keep like he should, and he is therefore rebelling against that truth that he knows. Holding the truth in unrighteousness is knowing the basic truth that there is a God to whom we are responsible that we will someday answer to, and that he has set down rules that we're supposed to follow, and we are breaking those rules while knowing that they exist. This includes every man, woman, and child ever born on the face of this earth with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way we can distort the Word of God is bringing our preconception into it. By this I mean that we sometimes believe something and then we go to the Bible and try to find proof text to support what we believe. This approach is completely backwards. We're not supposed to take our preconceived ideas to the Scriptures and try to find something in the Scriptures that will support them, we're to take what the Bible says and judge our preconceived beliefs by them. When the Bible says something and our preconceived uh, beliefs disagree with it, then we're to change and come in line with the Scriptures. If we don't, we're distorting the Scriptures. An easy example of this is to look at how Protestants and Catholics handle their belief that uh, we should baptize infants. They go to Acts chapter 16, verse 33, that says, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Now, in this verse, it is the Philippian jailer that took Paul and Silas and washed their wounds from their beatings. And then uh, he had listened to the gospel, and his family had listened to the gospel, and they had gotten saved. And then they were baptized. Now, there's nothing in this verse about baptizing infants, but both Catholics and Protestants assume that there must have been small children in the jailer's household. They have read their preconceived doctrine of infant baptism into this passage. Now, folks, I have my whole family living here right beside me. I have, We live in our house and my kids live in the next house, and my grandkids live there, and there is not an infant in the whole lot. So, if we brought them all together, and they heard the gospel, and then they were all baptized, there would not be an infant baptized. So, they are making an assumption, and through that assumption, they are distorting the scriptures. The next thing I want to look at is how many Baptists bring a preconceived doctrine into a passage of scripture and miss something that is very important. The passage of Scripture I want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. It says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Most people take this passage of Scripture and show that each Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is this a true statement? It is. If you take a temple as being a dwelling place, which is what it is, it is true that Uh, that all Christians' bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But is that what this verse is teaching? Before I explain the verse, let me first uh, show you that I know that the Bible teaches, and I believe it's true that uh, each Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit which dwelleth in you. See, this passage of Scripture says that Christians are indwelt. We'll look at it a little closer in a moment, but first let's go back and look at this at this uh, verse in 1 uh, Corinthians and see what it's really saying. Then we'll apply the same principles to the verse we just looked at. First of all, we need to understand that the church is the body of Christ. Now, most of you out there think that uh, the, there's a universal church, which is the body of Christ. The scriptures don't teach that, but we'll deal with that at another time. The church is the body of Christ, whether I'm right or you're right, doesn't matter. That's a clear teaching of scripture. But let's examine this verse to see what it's talking about. The first thing I want you to understand that this verse is written to the church of God. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, which is at Corinth. It's written to a group, a church. Now, let's look at the pronouns in this verse. The first thing you need to notice is that the pronouns are ye and you and yours. We do not see the use of thee, thou, or thine anywhere in this verse of Scripture. This means that Paul is not talking about one person, an individual Christian. He's talking about a group, the church that is at Corinth. So he's talking to them as a group. Now I want you to look at the nouns that are used in this passage of Scripture. There are four nouns used body, temple, Holy Ghost, and God. All of these nouns are singular. The only two that matter for our discussion are the two body and temple. Now let's put this together and see what it really says. It says your body. Your is the group because it's more than one person. It is the Church of God at Corinth. Body is singular. Meaning that this is a singular body which belongs to the group. That would indicate the church. Had Paul said, your bodies, he would have meant each individual member's body, but he didn't. He used the word bodies in verse 15, so he did know the difference. You will also notice that temple is singular. This means that Paul is not talking about several bodies being several temples, he's talking about a single body being a single temple. What those who see this as each Christian's body being the temple of the Holy Spirit are teaching isn't wrong. It's just that this passage of Scripture doesn't teach that. As I said before, if you interpret this passage this way, you're missing a great truth. That great truth is that each local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple where the Holy Spirit uh, dwells in a special way. When the church comes together, the Holy Spirit is present in a very special way. Now let me read Romans chapter 8, verse 11, and let's look and see how this same method of interpretation is applied in this verse of Scripture. It says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, in this verse of Scripture, you will notice how the pronouns and the nouns all agree with each other. You will notice that it talks about the Spirit dwelling in you. That's plural. He raised up Christ from the dead. will also quicken your. That's plural. Then it says mortal bodies. See, now that's plural also. So each one of our mortal bodies, this physical flesh that we live in, has His Spirit living in us if we are saved. He dwells in us, in you, plural. So all of us have it. But the verse in 1 Corinthians is talking about the Holy Spirit in the church, the local New Testament church, being a place where the Holy Spirit comes. That's where God meets with His people. And how does God meet with His people? Through the Holy Spirit. Understanding that the local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit will change the way people look at church services. It will cause them to show more respect. I mean, it's appalling the way some people look at church today. They come to church looking like they were going to their son's ball game or something instead of coming to church looking like they were going to meet with God. Sometimes the women come into church dressed in a manner that should make them ashamed. It makes it difficult for the men to keep their minds where they ought to be. Sometimes uh, the children misbehave and the parents don't do anything about it. They let them run around the church. They they give them candy during church and leave the paper laying around after church. I don't have any problems with the kids having the candy. What I have a problem with is leaving the mess for somebody else to clean up. But it would change the way that people look at, at the church. It will cause them to listen more carefully to the preacher. It will cause them to have a greater desire to receive something from it if they understand that they are there in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will apply the preaching to their hearts and they need to be receptive to it. Do we really want to miss out this point just because we distort the meaning of something? Folks, it's important to learn what the words mean in the Bible and to use them correctly. That's the job of a preacher, but it's also the job of any student of the Word of God. I'm sure that there are a lot of other ways that the Word of God could be uh, corrupted, and I'm sure that if you'll just think about it a little bit, you'll think of some of them. But I think this is enough to get across the point that I'm trying to make in this message. What I'm trying to tell us here is that God has given His Word so that we can understand it. We're not to distort it. We're not to change it. We're not to add to it. We're not to take away from it. We're not to change the meaning of things. We're not to say, well, this really means this. If it says what it says, that's what it means. One of the biggest problems we have today on this issue of distorting the the Word of God is the multiplicity of Bible translations. With so many translations, it's hard to know what the Bible really says. I doubt that many of us can read Greek and Hebrew well enough to understand its meaning as we just read through it. However, we can understand English if we will study properly, use a proper English dictionary, do things the way they ought to be done. Folks, it's God's Word. Our lives are supposed to be based upon God's Word. We can't allow it to be distorted. And if we hear people distorting it, we should call it to their attention. They may not realize that they're even doing it, but we should call it to their attention. Get them to stop. Take the Word of God for what it really says. We just don't have the option to change things. It's not something we're supposed to be doing. And it affects the way we live. It's one of the reasons we're having so much trouble reaching the lost world today. There are so many distortions that the lost world is confused. They don't know who to believe, so they put us in the same class with every other religion out there, with Islam or Buddhism or anything else. Folks, if we have the Holy Spirit as our teacher, and the Bible says we do, and if we're using the same textbook, the Word of God, then shouldn't we believe the same things? Shouldn't we be teaching the same things? Let me put it this way, shouldn't we be getting shouldn't we be getting the same answers on the tests? This is not a side issue, folks. This is something that is extremely important. And I know that most people will hear this broadcast and just brush it off. They will not go home and sit down and study these things out. They will not look at what they do and the way they handle the Word of God to see whether or not they are of those which corrupt the Word of God. By the way, the modern versions corrupt that verse also. They change corrupt the Word of God to peddle the Word of God. Petal means to sell. Corrupt means to to uh, pollute in some way. The Greek word that's translated corrupt there is the same Greek word that was used among the ancient Greeks to describe those who had wine to sell and they would add water to it, corrupt it, so they would have more to sell. It doesn't mean pedal. Now, I know if you go look in Strong's Dictionary, it's going to tell you that it means retail. Well, is retail... Corrupting? Is there something wrong with retailing? Is there something wrong with somebody uh, having a printing house that prints Bibles and sells them to the public so the public can have the Word of God? Is there something wrong with that? Of course not. But there is something wrong with corrupting the Word of God. So when they change scriptures in just what seems like small things, it makes a big difference in the end. So folks, take this issue seriously It's something that we must consider. We must be careful about how we interpret God's Word, how we teach God's Word, and how we preach God's Word. It's extremely important. Now, folks, I uh, know that some of you enjoy this broadcast, and some of you probably don't. But if you're interested in hearing me preach in person, this Sunday in both services, I'm going to be preaching in... uh, Sleepy Hollow Baptist Church in Lenore well actually it's in Gamewell if you know where Rocky Road is there's a trailer park called Sleepy Hollow Trailer Park and the church is actually in that trailer park you have to drive through the trailer park to get to it the address of the church is 1062 Sleepy Hollow Road as I say, though, you got, you'll got, you find it off of Rocky Road and you go through the Sleepy Hollow Trader Park because Sleepy Hollow Road runs right through the middle of that and it'll get you there. The morning service is at 1030. The evening service is at 6 p.m. and I will be speaking in both services. So if you're interested in hearing me in person, you're welcome to come. I would sure like to meet some of those of you who, who listen to my broadcast and get your opinion on... Uh, on what you think about the broadcast. I've got a few minutes left, and I'd like to talk to something that's really uh, a burden to me. I keep hearing people in the news and everywhere else talk about radical Islam. The word radical means to depart from what's normal. The radical Islams, if we use the proper definition of the word, would be those who are the moderates, those who want to have a peaceful Islamic religion. Just in case you didn't know, America has been fighting wars against the Muslims ever since the 1700s when we first became a nation. The first foreign war that we had was the Barbary Pirates War, and this was a war against the Barbary Pirates in the Mediterranean Sea who were attacking our ship, taking our people, killing the men, and selling the women as sex slaves. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Muhammad did when he was running the show. That's exactly what the first caliphs did. That's exactly what they did when they came into uh, uh, Europe. And by the way, while we're on that, let me say that the crusades that they keep holding against us were just the Christians, so-called at least, going back and taking back land by the sword that the Muslims had taken from them by the sword. Folks, it's time we understand what's going on and understand that the very nature of Islam is what we see in ISIS and Boko Haram and those other groups. It's time that we understand that what they're doing is what the Quran and the Hadith teach them to do. Now, we think that the only scriptures the Muslims have is the Quran, just like our only scriptures are the Bible, but that's not true. The Hadith are the actions and the words of Muhammad, and they are considered just as authoritative to the Muslims as is the Quran. And so we need to understand that what we see is what Islam is. And we need to start standing up against it. We need to let our leaders know that we understand what Islam is really all about. It's about taking over the world for Islam and eliminating everybody either through conversion by force or by death who is not a Muslim. The word Islam means submission. It's about being submitted to Allah. And Allah is a f- false God. He is not the same as the God of the Bible. Not at all. Anyway, folks, I've got my little rant here. I think I'll close for today and end this broadcast. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Covert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.